Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24 for a reading of one verse there that the Lord used to provoke me to bring some messages to you about this great subject of Jesus Christ as King. Throughout the Bible, a son was promised, a child was given, that would be a great king of the increase of his government, there would be no end. When the wise men came to Herod and inquired about he that was born king of the Jews, they knew a scripture that in little Bethlehem of Ephratah would be one born that was to be king. An angelic host announced him as king to shepherds. Gabriel came to Mary and said, He shall sit on the throne of his father David forever and ever, and he shall be great. I I had great pleasure reading those words to humble little Mary that came from Gabriel before he was conceived and born of a virgin mother. And throughout the Bible he's presented as king. And we just sang about him as king. And if you read some of the chapters that I gave you last evening in the preparatory email, you read about him being set on the colt and brought into Jerusalem, and the common people received him as king. And they praised him as king. And they praised him with hosannas as the son of David. But the religious leaders did not. The religious leaders rejected him as king, And they said to him, don't you hear what's being said? Doesn't that bother you that such lofty things are being said about you? And he said, if they were to be silent, the rocks would cry out. And do you know what? We just sang a song that said, every rock and rill and field sings praise to the King of Heaven. And then it went on to say that Jesus Christ was going to level that city to the ground. This is all in the same place. He's going to level that city to the ground because they knew not the day of their visitation. And that visitation was when the Son of Man came to his vineyard expecting some fruits from a nation that he had blessed so abundantly. And he leveled it to the ground. And we want to remember the Lord Jesus Christ as King. To the degree that Jesus Christ is preached and believed as that effeminate long-haired hippie begging at a door in a garden. To the degree that is taught is to the degree that men will not fear him. If Jesus Christ is presented as he presented himself, and as the Bible presents him, there is reason to fear the Lord Jesus Christ, and we want it to humble our hearts. And so we look at the Word of God and we find a great event that took place that shows how he is able to conquer his enemies And those that rejected him, he did destroy in fury. And he destroyed them miserably. And it was a tribulation, the likes of which the world had never seen to that point in time, and it has not seen since. However, there's going to be a judgment at the end of the world, that is when Jesus Christ comes bodily to take us into his heavenly kingdom, in which he'll burn up the heavens and the earth. And that's coming. But that Jesus Christ that I'm describing to you right now, is hardly taught in any pulpits. This morning in most churches, they are preaching seeker-sensitive messages, seven rules for you to be happy. Who cares about your happiness? I don't care that much about your happiness. I care about the happiness of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you were making Him happy, you would be most happy. Because the only way you'll ever be happy is to own and serve and love and adore and worship and praise the Lord Jesus Christ as a king. You will never be happy without doing that. And to the degree you compromise in doing that is the degree of your unhappiness. All happiness for a child of God is found in loving the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot find it any other way. There's no things, there's no persons There's no affection, there's no activity that you can ever have. There's no reward, there's no praise or honor that can make you happy like finding your all in all in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to love Him and adore Him and lift Him up in your hearts. And we want to do that this morning. And we want to do it by looking at a great event, and that is the destruction of Israel and Jerusalem, the temple and the priesthood, the old covenant, all that pertain to it. 
And the Jewish people as a nation in 70 A.D. under the Roman armies led by Titus the prince. The verse that the Lord has provoked me with, and I, I found a note that I had made to myself several months ago. I found it yesterday. I shouldn't be able to find things like that because if you had a clean desk, you would never find old notes. But I found an old note to myself about Matthew 24:14. It wasn't dated, but it was just a little note to myself about how much it had meant to me in reading this verse. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in Matthew and it's in Mark. It's not in Luke's account. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. We're going to continue studying and leading ourselves up to Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, but I want this verse first because this is why I'm preaching it. There are three things we want to see here at least in Matthew 24, verse 14. The gospel of the kingdom. For the gospel of the kingdom, to truly be the gospel of the kingdom, it has to present Jesus Christ as king. That is why the first sermon preached after his resurrection, Peter said, well, what verse did he quote, by the way? What psalm did he quote? Are you familiar with it? Psalm 110 that we read this morning. And what verse did he quote from that psalm? Did he consider the most important and applicable? Verse 1. But that was from Acts chapter 2. He said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed Savior sent by God, the seed of the woman, to deliver us from our sins. But He's also the Lord of David, Psalm 110, verse 1, that is sitting on God's throne and is about to make His enemies His footstool. And who were His chief enemies in the whole universe at that point in time? The Jewish nation and the Pharisees. And so Peter went on and concluded his sermon by saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation because the Lord Jesus Christ sitting on His throne is about to destroy them. That was the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is king. He's sitting on His throne and He's going to make His enemies His footstool starting with the Jewish nation and then moving into all the Gentile nations. And you know, you look at our nation. My, my family last night, my youngest daughter sat there and she said, Dad, as I read... Luke 19, as I read Luke 21, it's got to apply to America as well in the sense that look how we treat the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at how our nation acts. Look at their kind of worship. And you bet, in an indirect way, because Jesus wasn't directing it to Gentiles, Jesus was a minister of the circumcision. Don't forget that. Oh, I wrote you yesterday and I didn't mean to alarm anyone. But we had two attacks by the time I wrote you, and we had three by the time I went to bed last night, from SDAs. What are SDAs? They're not sexually destructive abnormalities. Seventh-day Adventists. Seventh-day Adventists were attacking us through our website because they're 2,000 years too late in their religion of worshiping a relic from the Old Covenant. And that relic is Sabbath worship. They have one cow that they have erected in their churches, in their minds, in their Bibles, and everywhere. And that is the the golden calf of Saturday worship. And they were attacking us over that. And I'm so thankful to know that Jesus Christ was a minister to the circumcision. And we are not to follow Jesus Christ directly. Hold on. Don't walk out and leave me here. We're to follow Jesus Christ the way Paul told us to follow Jesus Christ. Because they would throw arguments at me like, do you think Jesus worshipped on Sunday? And I wrote back, of course He did not worship on Sunday. He was a minister to the Jews, and He was worshipping as a Jew with Jews. But as soon as He rose from the dead, He changed the day of worship to the Lord's Day, in which He appeared on the first day of the week to His disciples, And he told the Apostle Paul, who wrote to us, Be ye followers of me, as I follow Christ. And Paul never worshipped on Saturday. 
The only time Paul worshipped on Saturday was when he went into the synagogues of the Jews in order to accommodate their old covenant worship to get them and convert them and have them worship with him on Sunday the next week. Jesus Christ was a minister to Jews. When he's preaching in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Luke 19, Luke 17, Matthew 16 or anywhere, he's not preaching to Gentiles. He's preaching to the Jewish nation. And he's addressing them, and you want to keep that in mind. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. John the Baptist introduced it. Jesus preached it. And he raised up 12 chosen men that preached it to the world. And so that brings us to our second point. This gospel of the kingdom, which is a message that Jesus Christ is king, shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And that's a point that's going to take us a couple of sermons to, before we get to it. And that is that the gospel was preached in the days of the apostles in all the world to all nations. The apostle Paul said that before he died, and he died and stopped writing anyway before the destruction of Jerusalem. And he said that it had come in all the world because God raised up special men to go and preach the gospel. They didn't have to go to language school. They could speak in any language that they encountered, and they could speak it fluently, and they could preach the gospel of the kingdom. And so this gospel was preached in all the world, including the British Isles. And we are the effect of it today. We are sitting here as Gentiles, believing the gospel of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ in English, because God preached it to us in all the world for a witness before the end came. And the end is the end under consideration in all the passages we've read so far and all the ones we're going to read in the future. The end of the Jewish nation, the end of Jerusalem, the end of the temple, the end of the old covenant, because that's what's under consideration. The disciples pointed out to Jesus, look at these beautiful stones and these magnificent buildings. And Jesus said, I'm going to level them all. And that's the end. That was the end of the Jewish nation. It was over. They were scattered abroad, and Jerusalem would be trodden down of the Gentiles for the rest of this dispensation till the Lord comes. That's point number two. The gospel was preached in all the world to all nations for a witness that Jesus was king. It was a witness. Think about the witness. Fishermen, fishermen, uneducated fishermen came from Galilee into other nations and said there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth sent by God. He was born of a virgin. For three and a half years he performed mighty signs and wonders. He was rejected by the Jewish nation. He was crucified by Pontius Pilate with the approval of Herod the king. He was crucified and he was buried and he rose again the third day. We witnessed him after his resurrection from the dead for 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God as king forevermore, and he's going to destroy his murderers. That was the witness of the gospel of the kingdom, because that's the New Testament. I just gave you a thumbnail sketch of the New Testament. That was preached in all the world. Then the end came that they were all able to see in their newspapers and watch on the television as the prophecies, which are enormous, they take up a great chunk of our New Testament, were fulfilled before their very eyes. So the witness made by the preaching of the gospel that Jesus was king was confirmed. Those men themselves, those Gentiles, our fathers in other nations, never saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. They never saw any of his signs and wonders. They saw some of the apostles' signs and wonders for a few years. But they heard a message with details of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and what was about to happen on earth. And then it happened. But Jesus made sure the witness was brought to all the nations before the end came so that they would all recognize what he was doing when it happened. Because he did it. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't the Romans thinking of something they ought to do. Because no no king has ever done anything that he thought he was going to do on his own without God using it for his own purposes. It doesn't matter whether it's the king of Assyria in Isaiah chapter 10 or the ten kingdoms that give their kingdoms to the, the ten kings that give their kingdoms to the beast in Revelation 17:17. 17, 17. God put it in their hearts to give their kingdoms to the beast. 
All the kings. He raises up kings and he puts down kings and he directs their hearts as the rivers of water. And so this witness was preached in all the world. Then the end came. And that is the end of Jerusalem, the end of the temple, the end of the Jewish nation, the end of the old covenant. It was wiped out. The, the 40 years. Oh, I want to do a document so much, but that most people wouldn't even appreciate it. A document on the Great Reformation. And the Great Reformation is from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D., a 40-year time span in which God allowed the Old Covenant of temple worship with Levitical priests in Jerusalem to run simultaneously with the Gospel running for 40 years because it was a time of transition. But that time of transition came to an end. Now it was progressive. When did it begin? The first man that opened his mouth, the Bible tells us, the law and the prophets were until John. That is when the time of Reformation and the kingdom of God began. But that was not the end of the Jewish nation yet. Then we move along three and a half years. And in the middle of the 70th week that we looked at last Sunday evening, Jesus said, it is finished. Now there's a little bit more ending of the old covenant. But the priests were still operating, weren't they? They were still a threat to the Hebrew Christians, weren't they? In the book of Hebrews, were the Hebrew Christians tempted to go back and worship under the Old Covenant? Yes, they were. That's why the book of Hebrews was written. It's only purpose. So what happened later? All the apostles wrote their works. You know what the apostle Paul had to do much of his life? Why did he write the book of Galatians? He had to war against Judaizers that were still coming out of Jerusalem, saying the only way to get saved was to keep the law of Moses. That's why the book of Galatians exists. Six chapters, one point. You do not mix the religion of Moses and the ceremonial worship of God with the gospel of grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not mix the two. Well, God took care of all that in 70 A.D., when the temple was raised to the ground and the foundations were dug up and Jesus said, I won't even let two stones of these buildings, disciples, remain together. I'm going to send armies that are going to dig a trench all the way around this city and they're going to level it to the ground. And if you read all the other prophecies, I'm going to plow up the earth like it's a farmer's field. All the priests were killed. The temple wiped out. The altar destroyed. And the few remaining utensils of the temple were hauled through the the city streets of Rome. To this day, there is a huge arch in the city of Rome called the Arch of Titus. On that arch, engraved, are all the utensils from the temple in Jerusalem as a standing monument to what Jesus Christ did to His enemies in ending the Old Covenant and destroying the murderers that crucified the Lord of glory and burning up their city for what they did to Him. Because the real city that belongs to us is Jerusalem, which is above. Hebrews 12 and Galatians 4. It's amazing. Rome's been sacked so many times because the Lord Jesus Christ, after He finishes using a nation to punish His people, He then pounds that nation. Go read Isaiah 10 about the king of Assyria. He used the king of Assyria to spank Israel, but then He pounded Assyria. And the Rome, Rome's been pounded so many times, the city of Rome was sacked over and over and over again. But there is still one arch that remains in great shape. It's the Arch of Titus. Built in 71 A.D., 72 A.D. by his brother, in honor of his brother, that shows exactly what happened. So here we are. Matthew 24, 14, and I'm taking my time because I want especially the young people to be saved from the futuristic imaginations of Tim LaHaye Hal Lindsey, C.I. Schofield, J.N. Edward Irving, and all the rest that try to teach these little modern fairy tales and novels about what's coming in the future. Much of the New Testament of Jesus speaking has been fulfilled. Much of what Malachi said has been fulfilled. And I want you grounded in it. I want you thinking the right way when you hear these passages. And for those of you that are quizzing, In the Gospel of Matthew, I don't want you just to memorize those verses, but to understand what they're saying. Matthew 24, 14, three things. The Gospel of the Kingdom, meaning Jesus Christ is a King. Psalm 110, verse 1, quoted six times in the New Testament, shall be preached in all the world for a witness, which it was by the apostles before 70 A.D., because early in the 60 A.D.s, Paul said, it's already been preached in all the world. Then the end shall come. That's not the end of the world. That's not the end of the earth. 
That's not the end of the United States. That's the end of the Jewish nation because that's the context. That's the subject matter. That's what was coming to an end. And that witness has been preached everywhere and we believe it. If you read the Bible, if you've read the Bible, when you go into the Old Testament, you find that much of the Old Testament is either a warning or a historical description of God's judgment on the nation of Israel. Is that fair? A great chunk of the Old Testament, a great portion of the Old Testament is either God warning Israel of what He's going to do to them if they don't repent, or the actual historical description of what He did to them because they didn't repent. Now let me say something. If God was so severe upon His church in the wilderness for doing something of relative insignificance, in comparison to crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ, how much greater would be His judgment on the Jews for rejecting Jesus? And that's the whole lesson of Hebrews. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression received a just reward, the Apostle Paul is saying, if you disobeyed under the Old Testament, if you disobeyed under Moses, Moses gave his law from angels. If you disobeyed then, every transgression received severe judgment. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation that has been spoken by the Lord and confirmed unto us by them that heard him? That's Hebrews 2. And that's repeated over and over in the book of Hebrews because to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ in the profane manner that they did To reject three and a half years of his signs and wonders was by far the greatest crime ever committed on this earth. How great must the judgment be? And so if there was a great amount of space dedicated to that subject in the Old Testament of what God was going to do to his nation and his church of the Old Testament, we shouldn't be surprised to find many references to it in the New Testament for their much greater sin of crucifying Jesus Christ. What I want to do is lift up the Lord Jesus Christ to you. I want you to see Him as a King, and I want you to see His kingship in history, which extends to our very day, dashing the nations in pieces. He wants you to see it that way. There is a today, thinking about Matthew twenty-four fourteen, which is what your Bibles are open to, that Jesus cannot come back the second time until Benny Hinn and Billy Graham get the gospel preached to the whole world. That's how they understand Matthew twenty four fourteen. Jesus Christ cannot come back the second time until someone gets the gospel to the whole world. Well, since Benny Hinn and Billy have the biggest crowds, they must be the ones God had in mind, and until they get it to everyone, Jesus can't come back. That isn't what Matthew twenty four fourteen is teaching, as I've already told you. The preaching in Matthew 24, 14 was already done before 70 A.D. It was done by the apostles because God specially enabled them to go and do it. And when we get to that point, I'll show you that Paul did most of it himself. And when you add in the other 11, what a, what a, there's more than 11, but when you add in the other 11, what a team of preachers of the gospel. To, get, to fulfill this prophecy so that the end could come. But you know, no one ever hears about this today. You can go to any church you want to, and even when they're preaching on Bible prophecy, they don't know anything about 70 A.D. Because the devil has stolen that knowledge that lifts up the Lord Jesus Christ, that he spent most of his the prophetic part of Jesus Christ's ministry and of John the Baptist and of the apostles, a great portion of that prophetic part was announcing what Jesus was going to do to his enemies that had crucified him. A great portion of Malachi, there at the end of the Old Testament, was pointing toward that event. A great portion of Daniel, Daniel was basically limited to it except one chapter. One chapter applies to us that runs far enough to include us, and that's Daniel chapter 7. 
And I'm thankful that we were able to go over Daniel verse by verse about three years ago. And I hope you remember some of that. It is terrible that it's been lost and most people don't know anything about it. We're not doing a complete study at all. I'm just leading you through this slowly so that you'll understand it and not forget it. And one of the ways of teaching is repetition and going slow. I want you to grasp it so that you, when you read passages in the New Testament, you'll delight in them and that you will delight in the Lord Jesus Christ that has done these great things. Full knowledge would take verse by verse of Daniel 9 through 12, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, several chapters in Matthew, several chapters in Luke, a couple chapters in Mark, Acts chapter 2, the whole book of Hebrews, the Jewish epistles like First and Second Peter. You've got to read all that, the book of James, because those were Jewish men writing to Jews, and so there are references in their epistles to the very event we're discussing. But we're not going to do that. We don't want to go that far. Lots of things happened in that 40-year period that we call the Reformation because the Bible calls it the time of Reformation. We had a resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. A resurrection. We had an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that caused men that were uneducated and untrained to be able to preach fluent their languages. We had signs and wonders given to men that were abundantly great and, and in, all over the Roman world. We had men that had the words of wisdom and knowledge that could answer questions with divine understanding from heaven in an assembly. We had the Word of God coming together for the New Testament in a matter of a few years. All these events are part of the time of Reformation. All of them. And the final one that ended the time of Reformation was just wiping out that old covenant and its people as a nation. There were still Jews. Paul was still a Jew. There may be a few left today. And there may be a few saved today. But as a nation, they were wiped out because God has a new nation. And that new nation is His new kingdom, is His new vineyard, that He's taken the vineyard away from them and given it to primarily Gentiles. And we want to render Him the fruits in their due season, as, as has already been said this morning. The Bible's a Jewish book. Don't forget that. Until we get to the book of Acts and we see the transition to the Gentiles, it was a Jewish book. And then our brother Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles and began teaching in Romans and those other epistles to Gentiles. But most of the book is a Jewish book. And so the events that surrounded Israel, including the destruction of Jerusalem, were very important. Let's go over a simple timeline again. Jesus was born in 4 B.C. He was baptized in 26 A.D. at about 30 years of age, as the Gospel of Luke tells us. In the year 30, three and a half years into his ministry, in the midst of the seventh week, he laid down his life for our sins. He rose from the dead. He spent 40 days showing himself to above 500 brethren at once and to all the apostles who went out as eyewitnesses to say, Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. Saw him ascend into heaven after he ate and drank with us. That was in 30 A.D. The apostles immediately received great power just a few days later from heaven in the form of the Holy Ghost. They preached the gospel, took it first to the the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and then to Judea, the state in which Jerusalem was, then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what they were told to do, and that's what they did do, and they started that in 30 A.D., and they had it finished by the middle of the 60 A.D.s, because the apostle Paul said that it was finished during his lifetime. In 33 A.D., the 70th week came to an end. In 66 A.D., the gospel had been preached to all the world. The sign and the revelatory gifts had ended. No more sign gifts. Paul couldn't heal. You know, why didn't... i got to chase this one. This is worthwhile. I get this question often. Should we call for the elders of the church and have them anoint sick people and pray over them and have them healed? From James chapter 5. No, we should not do that. And no, we will not do that. Why doesn't that verse apply to us? James was a Jew, writing to Jews, and he was writing while the sign gift still existed. That was a sign gift. That was not ordinary prayer for a person that was sick. Ordinary prayer for a person that was sick may work and it may not work. 
that prayer always worked, and it was to be done with the anointing of oil, which was an apostolic sign gift from Mark. The Gospel of Mark tells us that anointing the sick with oil and then praying over them was something to the apostles. See, the reason you know that is by comparing Mark to James and then going to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and finding out that when Timothy had stomach problems, Paul didn't write to him and say, Hey, read James 5, brother. Read James 5 so you can get some elders to pray over you and anoint you with oil. Because that healing power had gone. He was, he was back to home remedies like we are. He said, Drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. And then in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, the last chapter he wrote, he said, I've left Trophimus at Miletus sick. Can't do anything for the brother. I hope you understand that. The sign and the revelatory gifts ended right there in, in Paul's lifetime. They were ending, and the New Testament was coming together. There were great and wonderful things happening during that 40 years, from thir- approximately from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D. 66 A.D. Jews got angrier against Rome. What brought on, what brought on the destruction that we read about in Daniel chapter 9, where a prince would bring his armies and lay waste to the city and the sanctuary? The sanctuary being, meaning a word for the temple. What brought that on? The Jews revolted in 66 AD. Cestius Gallus brought the 12th legion down from Antioch, where they were stationed, surrounded the city with 30,000 men, could have taken it in a day, and left. Unexplicably. I told you all this last week. I'm repeating it so that you won't forget it. Roman general surrounded the city of Jerusalem with armies, and then left. The, the, the command of the armies in Judea were given to Vespasian. For the next two years, Vespasian laid waste to cities in Judea. But he did it in a very slow, methodical method because he was waiting to find out what was going to happen in Rome because Nero had died and they were about to make a new Caesar. And Vespasian was eventually made Caesar after three Caesars killed themselves or killed each other in the space of one year. Then he gave the armies over to his son Titus, which would make Titus a prince. Then Titus the prince brought four legions up and the city of Jerusalem, and after a siege of five months, leveled the city to the ground, just as Jesus told us. He built a wall all the way around it and starved the people in the city of Jerusalem. And it was the most horrible calamity in a city to a nation that has ever occurred in the history of the world. And you must remember that. Jesus baptized in 26 A.D., died in 30 A.D., Jerusalem wiped out in 70 A.D. But before it was wiped out, armies came and surround the city, which is the very sign Jesus gave. For those of you that read Luke 21 last night, what sign was to cause the inhabitants of Jerusalem to run to the mountains and to cause those that lived in the countryside not to come into the city? What sign? When you'll see Jerusalem encompassed with armies which Cestius Gallus did in 66 A.D., giving them three and a half years, which is prophesied in the book of Daniel chapter 12, giving them three and a half years to make their way out and live in other places, which they did. Because they obeyed the Lord Jesus Christ in His very specific signs. And Jesus promised, I'll shorten those days so that the elect can be saved. Because if they were to go on for a long time, the elect would starve to death, not being in their normal place with normal food production. Because everything in the land of Judea was being consumed by the Roman army. A very practical warning to one generation. The generation of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. The generation that defied them and rejected them. The generation that crucified the Lord of glory. God wiped them out. He brought upon them all the righteous blood shed from Abel by Cain to Zacharias, the son of Jehoiada, that was, that was stoned to death in Chronicles. He brought all the righteous blood. He said, all this righteous blood is going to be brought on this generation. And it was brought on that generation. That little timeline is very useful for your mind to see when did these things come to pass. 
The disciples wanted to know when they were going to come to pass. And Jesus told them, all these things shall come to pass on this generation. And he invoked the highest language that he uses in the New Testament to back himself up. He said, I say unto you, all these things shall come to pass on this generation. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my words shall not pass away. What I'm telling you right now about that temple that you think is impregnable and this city that you think cannot be defeated because it's on a mountain with these giant three walls. Yes, three walls. Because you think this city cannot be taken, because you think God is with these people that are in this city, on this generation, I will bring it to pass and it will be wiped out. You read some of the places last night. And that witness was preached in all the world to all nations, and then the end came. And just think of the confirmation for someone that had been given that. Every day when they got a report about the calamities, Titus didn't want it. Titus begged the city to surrender so he could save the populace, the city, and the temple. But they were demon-possessed beyond belief. Just Just as Jesus had said on that subject as well. Matthew chapter 12. He said, when a spirit is cast out of a man, it goes away, it gets bored because it doesn't have its old man. Then it gets seven demons that are worse than itself and comes as that man. And Jesus said, thus shall it be to this generation. million were killed. You can't even imagine it. This nation got alarmed when 3,000 people were killed in the Twin Towers in the Pentagon out of a population of 300 million. 3,000 is a percentage of 300 million can't be calculated in an average calculator. It's too small. Try 1.1 million out of a population that might have been 2 million and starve to death and killed by their own countrymen by the sword so that blood ran the streets like rivers. Jesus said it would be a tribulation the world had never seen and never would see upon one group of people. And that makes perfectly good sense, doesn't it? Because that was the nation that had crucified the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. After three and a half years of doing good, preaching truth, never taking a dollar from anyone, healing all their diseases and all their sicknesses, casting out devils, and being the Son of God by innumerable proofs, they crucified Him after betraying Him to a foreign government. Much, much history has been written about that, and every every paragraph of it to a Bible believer is precious because it's the fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen. I can't remember how much I told you last week. I've talked to several during the week. I've talked to my family and I've talked to myself. So I can't remember exactly what I told you because I am repeating myself right now and I know that to some degree because I want you to grasp it and retain it. In Micah chapter 3, one of the prophecies were that Zion shall be plowed like a field. When Titus left the city of Jerusalem and, and to go to Caesarea to celebrate his great victory over the city of Jerusalem, the hostilities had ended and he turned the city over to the commander of the 10th legion whose name was Terentius Rufus. And Terentius Rufus dug up the foundations of the temple and plowed them. And do you know what the Jews celebrate to this day? They don't celebrate it because it's good news, but they celebrate to this day the day that Ternus Rufus plowed Mount Zion. They know that. They still remember it 2,000 years later. And see, every one of those things in history that, that are first found in the Word of God, and then we hear about them, that confirms our faith in God. Prophecy has no value to someone who cannot find it in history. It's just the sound of words. It's just the sound of words. Zion will be plowed like a field. Well, what does that mean? When did that happen? Did it happen? How do I even know it happened? Well, because I believe God's Word. Well, how great is your faith? How did it happen? When did it happen? Can you prove that it happened? It did happen, and the whole world knows it happened. And the Jews, to whom it happened, still remember it. By name. The commander that did it. 
Last Sunday evening, I reminded you about prophetic language. Prophets do not speak directly. Look at Hosea chapter 12. Hosea 12. This is such an important lesson. For those of you that are going to Bob Jones High School, Bob Jones Elementary School, or Bob Jones University, I want you to remember this. Prophets did not speak in literal language. Prophets used figurative language. Prophets used word pictures. And you must remember that. The number one rule of Bible interpretation from C.I. Schofield is always take a prophecy in its literal sense. Which is just the opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible says don't take a prophet literally because he's using sign language. I quoted this verse, but I have to have you look at it. Hosea chapter 12 and verse 10. I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. The ministry of prophets includes similitudes. That's a simile. You have a simile in your speech when you say, He is like, or it is as. Whenever you use as or like, do you remember this from about the 6th grade, 8th grade, 10th grade, depending on what kind of a school you Whenever you're simile, prophets use similitudes by one thing to another. They never said in the Old Testament, John the Baptist is going to come. We're going to have the first Baptist. They said Elijah the prophet's going to come. And you were supposed to figure out when John the Baptist came, looking like Elijah, and at the time that Elijah was going to come, that that was Elijah the prophet. Oh, that's what you meant. Because that's how prophets spoke. You want to remember Hosea 12.10. Look at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. Revelation 1.1. This is very important because people get hung up and all this sci-fi stuff. Do you know where the science fiction stuff about the Antichrist and the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and all that comes from? It comes from people reading prophets and thinking they're speaking literally. Here's how they do it. Isaiah 11. The lion shall lie down with the lamb. Okay? I'm Hal Lindsey. I need to sell another book. I never had a real job in my life to support myself, so I've got to sell a book. Isaiah 11. The lion shall lie down with the lamb. Oh! There's going to be a kingdom someday in the future in which Jesus Christ is going to loose and open all the cages at the zoo And all the animals are going to lie down at peace with each other because it's going to be a kingdom of peace. That's where it came from. Every one of you that have seen pictures of a lion and a lamb laying next to each other, that is taking the word picture of a prophet and making it literal when Jesus didn't mean anything like that. What was he talking about? He was talking about Brother Michael Lutman and Sister Tammy Grimm having communion in the same church. That's what he was talking about. And it's it's wonderful. It's lions lying down with lambs. It's children playing on a cockatrice nest. Because God's going to make peace in His kingdom. And look at He's brought all of the different personalities and temperaments and backgrounds together in a church and made us a body. And on and on it goes because they don't want to submit to what the Bible... See, I didn't give you a seminary book to tell you that prophets use figurative language. I gave you the Word of God where God said the the ministry of prophets is to use similitudes. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto Him to show unto His servants things which must shortly come to pass. And He sent and signified it by His angel unto His servant John. The book of Revelation is a bunch of signs. It's not a bunch of express words. It's a bunch of signs. So when I see a great whore holding a golden chalice and riding on a beast with seven heads and ten horns, I don't go home and paint a picture of that, as all the Seventh-day Adventist cartoon books show. Do you follow? You are supposed to understand that a beast is a kingdom, because Daniel taught us that. A whore is an unfaithful church. The cup was showing all of her fornication with the kings of this earth, 
by uniting church and state. Simple. Because we took the pictures that the prophet signed to us, the angel signed to John, and we understood it's not really a beast, it's a kingdom that the Bible represents by a beast. Prophetic language in the Bible. You would not believe all these futurists are literalists. Wherever they read cloud, it must mean a cloud. So they run outside and paint a picture of a cloud. When most of the time, it doesn't mean a cloud. When it says the sun will be darkened, they start talking about there's going to be a solar eclipse like you've never seen before. It's just going to get dark in the middle of the day. God never meant anything like that. That was a picture of of something earth-shattering. Earth-shattering. Why, why do we ever use a word like that? When we say that, that is earth-shattering news, do we mean the earth was really shattered? Or are we, are we using strong, apocalyptic-type language to describe something that was pretty significant? And that's what the Bible does over and over and over again. And if you're going to understand prophetic language, then you've got to tr- submit yourself to the Bible. God sends it in signs, and He sends it in similitudes, and those are only two of about six references that give us the law of prophetic interpretation. When Joseph told his brothers, Brothers, I had a dream last night. The sun, the moon, the stars are going to bow down and worship me. Did the brothers go home and say, Joseph's lost his mind. Dad, Joseph's lost his mind and ought to be put in an insane asylum because he said the sun and the moon and the stars are going to worship him. Did they think that? Were they Schofield followers? Were they futurists? No. They knew what he meant. They meant that Dad, who was the sun, Mom, who was the moon, and the stars that were the brothers were going to get down and worship Joseph. And they didn't like it, and they wanted to kill him because they knew how to understand Bible prophecy. There's the sun, the moon, and the stars bowing down and worshiping someone, being taken out of their course. And that is one of a thousand examples from the Old Testament by which reading the Old Testament you learn to understand that when a prophet is giving a prophecy, look at the language very carefully because it's probably veiled in similitudes and signs. Look at Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13. This is, this is all essential to understanding the Bible. Part of me doesn't like taking the time. There is an outline called Rules of Bible Interpretation, called How to Understand the Bible. It's 75 pages long. Part of me says most of you won't read it. So the other part of me says, or that part says, I need to preach it to you in a very summarized form. Because rule number 10 out of those 75 pages is how to understand prophetic language. So I want to give you an example. Isaiah 13. Let's dive into Isaiah 13. About You can just dive into it about anywhere you want to. Let's try verse 4. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like as of a great people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together, the Lord of hosts mustereth the host of the battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, must be angels, even the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land, must be the whole earth, because it says the whole land. Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Well, since it says the day of the Lord here, and we have a day of the Lord in the New Testament, this must be the second coming. Don't you all agree? If we're going to take the Bible literally... This must be the second coming because it's called the day of the Lord. Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. See, it's God's destruction. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt. And they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. Cruel both with wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners out of it. Sounds like the end of time, and we're about to get the millennial kingdom. But let's keep reading. The stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. 
The sun shall be darkened and is going forth, and the moon shall not, ca- shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil. Let me stop there. In what I have just read, is that not a great description of the second coming of Jesus Christ and the destruction of the whole world as he roots all the sinners out of it and destroys them? This prophecy is 2,500 years old in its perfect fulfillment. Start at verse 1. The burden of Babylon. It's what happened to Babylon. And who did it to Babylon? Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian overthrew the city of Babylon. You say, how do you know that? Because I read verse 17. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. Verse 19, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellence, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. A complete and total destruction. Now, I just gave you an example from the Bible of wisdom in how to understand your Bible. The sun wasn't going to shine. The moon wasn't going to shine. The stars weren't going to shine. The whole world was going to be destroyed. All sinners destroyed out of it. And it was called the day of the Lord. Twice. But what was it? God raised up the Medes and the Persians 2,500 years ago and went to the city of Babylon, which has, which has been lying on the shores of the Euphrates River as a big pile of mounds to this day. But there's how the Bible is to be understood. The sun did not get dark, the moon did not stop shining, and the stars didn't flicker out. That is a description of earth-shattering events. Because the greatest kingdom in the world, Babylon, that thought she would sit forever and last forever, was ended. And you want to remember passages like this. When someone tries to give you a, well, the sun's got to go out. Oh, come on. Do you know what that means? They've never read the Bible. They've never read the Bible. You know, someone will say that there's not a thing fulfilled in the whole Bible. Because if we look at Isaiah 13 and try to make it literal, then it's never happened. But see, God told us how to look at it. My prophets use similitudes. They talk about the sun, the moon, the stars. Well, the sun could have been the king of Babylon. The moon could have been his counselors. All the stars could have been his governors of all his provinces because they were overthrown. Make it, any, make it anything you wish. But I can tell you what the whole prophecy was about. It was the burden of Babylon. The city of Babylon, the city of the Chaldees, its capital city, was overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. That's how we understand the Bible. If you don't have that, if you don't have that foundation, you're going to run into a book like Daniel. You're going to run into a book like Matthew. Into a book like Revelation. You're going to be totally confused. Because you're going to start seeing clouds, sun, stars, and all those other things, when God never meant for you to see those, He just meant we got a pretty big event on the horizon. Just like, you know what? We do the same thing when we use words like earth-shattering. There's a temptation, brethren, for us to run to extremes, to be either futurist, taking everything literally, or to be preterist, taking everything figuratively. And you know what? We were told another rule of Bible study. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Yeah. Rightly dividing the word of truth. We're going to have some statements in Scripture that say He's going to come in clouds, and we're going to know they're figurative. Then we're going to have statements in Scripture that say He's going to come in clouds, and we're going to know that they are literal. And that is rightly dividing the word of truth. The word of God is written in such a way that the same words are used to describe two very different kinds of events. The same description is used to describe two very different things in order for men that do not humble themselves and fear God will end up confused and for his babes, by putting a right division on those through a lot of study, will have them both. And today, all the futurists take everything literal and they're wrong. The preterists take everything figurative and they're wrong. And we are going to rightly divide the word of truth. And only God in heaven, only God in heaven knows the pain and the fear and the work that I go through to try to avoid ever misdividing one verse in the word of God. 
Because we don't want to misdivide even one verse. Because it says rightly dividing the word of truth, and if we don't rightly divide it, we're going to be ashamed in our doctrine. And all the futurists and the preterists, they are ashamed in their doctrine. Because it's shameful doctrine they end up with. I want to be approved of God. But I'm telling you the rules of the Bible. We're going to see some things, but you're going to say, it's called the day of the Lord. And it's called the day of the Lord. But we just separated the day of the Lord by at least 2,500 years because they're two very different things. You say, well, well, how do we know when to do that? Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman. All I know is to work hard and study and to humble myself and to beg God and to say these words, which are most easy for me to say. I am totally ignorant. I know nothing. I am nothing. Lord, show me your truth. All of you to pray that way for your pastor and to pray for our church. Because I believe that that's all it takes for God to show us the truth of His Word. I am so tired. I told you how many hours I spent this past week. Much of it reading the wisdom of men. And I'm just tired of it all. They put too much trust in scholarship. We want to put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will show us the truth. But I've just given you the rules of prophetic understanding. The prophets use similitudes, and we've got to rightly divide. Sometimes we're going to have things that sound... It's These have to be the same... No, they don't. If they have to be the same thing, then Paul wouldn't have written 2 Timothy 2.15. See, I just showed you the sun going out, and it doesn't have to mean the sun went out. I just showed you the moon not shining... And it doesn't have to mean the moon's not going to shine. In fact, it didn't have anything to do with the sun and the moon. That was picture language for you to understand that the great kingdom of the Babylonians was overthrown. I did not make very much progress today at all. I'm not going to apologize. I want you grounded in this. I do not want anyone being able to come into your homes, into your children's lives when they're at school or reading anything, or into this church in the future and try to pull you to a futuristic extreme or to a preteristic extreme. We are going to march down the middle road of what the Word of God tells us, and we are going to put things in their proper place by rightly dividing the Word of Truth. Without history, much of Bible prophecy becomes meaningless. It just becomes words. In Genesis chapter 16, God told a one-verse prophecy about Ishmael. He'll be a wild man. His hand will be against all of his brethren, and all of his brethren's hands will be against him. It's in one verse. You can read that and you say, cool, Ishmael's going to be a wild man. But you know what helps? It's to understand just a little tiny bit about the character of Arabs. Because for 4,000 years, that prophecy has been fulfilled to the whole world as a proof that the Bible is true. Because there's never been a group of people that couldn't get along with anyone like the Arabs. And there it is in Genesis 16:12. That's just one example. The God, why did God give prophecy? Let's think with me. For, I, I know what time it is. I really do. And I've already passed what I promised myself that I wouldn't do this morning. That doesn't help you now. Why does God give prophecy? Sometimes he gives it to threaten us into action. Sometimes He gives it to warn us what we ought to do when we see certain things happening so that we can be saved. Like running to the hills of Judea to be saved from the destruction of Jerusalem. Thank you for those of you that responded by saying you enjoyed last week where I pointed out that that couldn't possibly be the second coming or the rapture because who in the world is going to have time with the so-called secret rapture that is going to instantly rip you out of this world to run down off your rooftop, go inside and check through your drawers to see what you want to take with you. The second coming of Christ is not going to come in this delayed, slow-mo fashion in which you're going to go into your house and say, hey, I want my good gun, I want to take the keys to this vehicle, and I want to get my cash. See, it has nothing to do with the second coming. That coming down from your rooftops was Jesus telling them, when you see armies encircling Jerusalem, don't get caught up in the things of this life because the city is about to be desolated. So run 
for the mountains of Judea. And if you're in the countryside, and even though they might be having a big feast coming up, do not go into the city for that feast. Stay out of the city because I'm about to level it. Very practical advice. So sometimes prophecy is to help us practically by giving a warning, and we have those in the Bible. Then prophecy is given for God to show that there is no other God in the universe but Him. And that's what the book of Isaiah says over and over and over and over. That's why Isaiah is one of your fun books to read, because it lifts up God so high, he says, I declare the end from the beginning. Do you have another God that can do that? I declare those things which be not yet done, and I bring my purpose to pass. I've told you before they pass. That's why God's greatness is through fulfilled prophecy. The number one proof of the Bible being the Word of God is fulfilled prophecy. Then Jesus gave these three statements in the Gospel of John. I tell you, before it come to pass, so that when it comes to pass, you'll believe that I am He. You want to know why I'm preaching this series of messages? Those three verses in the light of a witness preached in all the world to all nations. Because my Savior, who sent me to preach Him as a King, gave some magnificent prophecies about what He was going to do to His enemies, and I'm going to show you that they were fulfilled, so that you will believe that He is the Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's why I'm doing it. Isaiah 44 and 45, you can't understand them without knowing about Cyrus the Persian. Impossible. They're meaningless words. Even though they have the word Cyrus in them, you better learn a little bit about Cyrus or you won't understand the two chapters. Isaiah 44 and 45 say things like this. I will dry up the river. I will leave the gates unlocked. He is my servant. I will give him the treasure of kings. Well, what in the world is it all talking about? I love him. He is my shepherd. He'll build my city. He'll let my captives go without price or reward. How did Cyrus get into the city of Babylon? His engineers diverted the rivers of the waters of the Euphrates River so that he marched his army in a riverbed into the city of Babylon. Go read all the expressions in Isaiah 44 and 45 about God saying, I will dry up the river for him so that he can take the city easily. How about Daniel 7, where we've got a leopard with four wings of a fowl and four heads. If you don't know anything about Alexander the Great, you can't understand the verse. It has no meaning but words. Because it's a word picture. And if you don't know the fulfillment, you can't appreciate it. The fulfillment makes it a magnificent prophecy. It's the Greek Empire. And what particular man is represented with the speed of a leopard also having four fowls, and it says four, four wings of a fowl, and it says dominion was given to it. And then it had four heads. Alexander the Great conquered the known world faster than any other military general. The whole world knows it. It's not contestable history. Because God gave him dominion over all the nations around the nation of Israel. He died at the age of 30. And what was his, what was his empire divided up to? His four generals. And by knowing just a little tiny bit of history, you are able to understand that verse without which you couldn't understand it at all. You wouldn't even know what the leopard's referring to. You wouldn't know why a leopard had wings. And you would start painting cartoon pictures for a little cartoon book. But what it is is a picture of a very fast empire coming into being and then crumbling into four parts. If you go to Daniel chapter 11, the king of the north against the king of the south, the king of the south against the king of the north, the king of the north against the king of the south, the king of the south against the king of the north, the queen of the north against the queen of the south, the queen of the south against the queen of the north, you're lost. And they're all lost. What is it? We're able to restrain that prophecy by the time parameters that Gabriel gave to Daniel before and after Daniel chapter 11. And what is the king of the north and the king of the south? We went through it in intricate detail about three years ago. The remains of Alexander the Great's empire, the Seleucids of Syria against the Ptolemies of Egypt. And why is it in the Bible? Because right between the two of them is the nation of Israel. And they got pounded over and over and over again. 
When did it happen? Between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. In that 400-year time period where the Bible doesn't write a thing, there's silence. And the people that were in great darkness saw a great light when John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth burst onto the scene and began opening up Revelation again. But during that 400 years, Daniel's prophecies were being fulfilled. And if you don't know anything about the Seleucids or the Ptolemies and their warfare with each other from Egypt against Syria over and over, you're lost when you come to Daniel 11. We don't interpret Scripture with history. We fulfill Scripture with history. And we rejoice in God's great fulfillment. He is a great God that is able to declare things before they come to pass and then bring them to pass because not only does he have the wisdom of the future, he's planned the future, and he's got the power to make the future. The Jesus Christ that I serve is such a king. And he promised what he would do to those that crucified him, and he did it. I want you to worship him this morning. The whole purpose is, I tell you before they come to pass, that when they come to pass, you'll believe that I am he. It is one thing to say, Lord, Lord. It is a whole other thing to say, Lord, Lord, and do all that he commands us. My whole desire is that we will say, Lord, Lord. We will sing, Lord, Lord, and we will mean it with all of our hearts. And we will obey him in all that he's commanded us. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. We'll look much further this evening.